It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by the former Ohio Democratic Party chair who has written a terrifying new book about extremism, not where you think, it's in state houses called Laboratories of Autocracy. David Pepper, thank you so much for being with us. Morning. How you doing? I'm doing very well. I mean, we we're, we're just sort of, yeah, I, I, I feel a little nervous. Um, yeah. David's a former Ohio Democratic Party chair, and you have an excellent new book, which I actually saved last, I don't know if it was out last week, but I remember seeing it and saving it. <laughs> um, yeah, it debuted at number four at Amazon. So I, I saved the book when I first oh. saw the title Laboratories of Autocracy, um, because I knew it was relevant to this particular moment. So I'm glad that we have you on this morning. Um, why why did you write this book right now? Why did why did we as an American electorate need this information right now? Well, you know, it's funny you asked that because I, I stepped aside from being chair in, in January. And if you had said, and, and I've written some novels in the past, if you had said that I have a book written by now, I wouldn't have believed you. I, it wasn't even my mind. But about mid-year, uh, literally about April, I'm just watching and I it, watching all that's happening all around the country. And I just think that in the end, so many of the so much of the commentary is focused in the wrong place. And if we don't yeah. wait in the second part of the title, Laboratories of Autocracy, the second part is a wake up call from behind the lines. Meaning if you're in a state like Ohio, we are watching just this horror show at our state house as they attack, you know, democracy. And when I say attack democracy, I'm not just talking about voting rights as bad as that is. I mean, it's the Texas abortion ban and what we saw litigated yesterday. It's attacks on protests, on history. If we saw other countries doing what our state houses are doing, and some are like Hungary, we would literally say, my God, that country is moving away from democracy towards autocracy. It's happening in our states right now. Many of them no longer meet any definition of a functioning democracy because they're so gerrymandered. And we keep kind of, we, we, we love to focus on Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, but how many laws have they passed? Zero. There are hundreds of people like them in state houses, literally passing laws every week that attack democracy. And if we don't go on offense and stop it, all whatever happens, let's say with this law from Texas yesterday, so say the Supreme Court retur- overturns it, they're going to keep going and going and going. They've done it all decade until they win on that issue and all the others. So we have to go on offense for democracy. And so the book is really a way to you know, the first two thirds is, is I hope, a, a, a enough detail that will shock people about how bad things have gotten in all these states. And the last third is, and here's what you can do about it. And we can't just quit on it. And one thing we can, we have to stop doing, we can't, we, we basically moved into a mode where we take it as a given that state houses are inevitably crazy. And when you give, when you take that as a given, you basically lose. Because you're basically accepting that they're always on offense and we're always on defense. If you accept those terms, history shows us that the side attacking democracy will win. 
So the book tries to wake people up and then says, here are a ton of things you can do to fight for democracy, not just in swing states, but every single state. I want to start with the first two thirds of the book. If we didn't have such a Washington bias when we talked about our political system, what are the shocking stories that people would be learning about what's going on in their own backyards? You know, just the state of, of the, just the lack of democracy. You know, it, it's, I think, almost harder to see when it's our own country. But I go through examples where, you know, th- in Ohio, one of the most, you know, unpopular laws that we've seen ever was this anti-labor law that, that happened in 11, okay? It went down, ter- it was, there was a referendum it, it went down in flames. Almost every single district, every county voted against it. And you would have thought going into 12 when Obama was on the ballot and won Ohio, that anyone who voted for that thing would have been out of office. All but one were reelected. Like it just shows you that we're not in a democratic world anymore. Uh, here's another example. Uh, and one of the things that comes that is part and parcel with the kind of lack of democracy one is corruption. It's all over Ohio and all these other states where state houses are basically guaranteed re-election. Um, uh, and the other is terrible public outcomes, because if, if a state house is corrupted, it means it's giving you know, public assets to private players. That's what they do. That's what they do with schools. That's what they do with all sorts of other things. Um, well, we have a town about 40 miles from here on the river. I, I'm in Cincinnati. This is town is called Manchester. Absolutely, you know, a ghost town. Nothing's there. Main Street's empty. The citizens of that town called their state senator to say, what are you going to do about it? And he told them, and by the way, most citizens would never even think to do that. He mm-hmm. meets with them and he says, sometimes you just have to move. What? So we're in a world where not only are these people failing egregiously on public outcomes, but they're so confident in their gerrymandered districts, the voters don't get to tell them it's time for them to leave. They tell the voters they should move. That's, that's what it's become in states like Ohio. And one other thing I'd say, and they, this is sort of the revelation I hope starts to occur to people. We have an entire generation of state house majorities now after the 2011 gerrymander. We have an entire generation that have basically their rise to power and their maintenance of power has had nothing to do with v- democracy. They, they basically maybe won a primary sometime. Maybe they got appointed. They've never again had to worry about the voters. And right. I think what people aren't seeing is if people, if their entire time in office is, has been without democracy and they figured out that the only way they lose their power is if there is democracy and they're the ones who write the rules of elections, it's a really dangerous combination. And it has truly warped what sort of the, the quote unquote public service in these state houses has become. I mean, it's extreme every single day. It's corrupt. And now that we're now that they have, you know, control of the gerrymandering process and the election writing process, they're doing everything they can to avoid elections in the future. And that's the reality. And if we're not careful, we're about to roll into the second generation of people who literally th- their entire time in power has been devoid of democracy. Mm. Why? How's that bleak? Yeah, it's bleak. But like, <laughs> why? Why is this so hard? Like, what? So, so you write about how Carl Rove basically 
realized that state houses were how he thought he could architect the resurrection of the Republican Party. I don't think he realized or anybody realized what it was going to resurrect into, but but he focused on state houses. Right. And it worked. Right. Why have they been able to do that? And we have not like what? Why do we know that if we start talking about state government, our people tune out? Like what what is that about? Um, I think that, you know, maybe it's something in our DNA that they they're thinking more about levers of power and about systematic power. And we get excited about individual candidates that inspire us. And I love a good inspiring candidate. But we you want to win a state house seat no matter what you want to win a state auditor office or elected judicial position no matter what and um and i think they just have been more disciplined and when i write about you know carl rove when he started plotting the 2010 strategy obama was in the 70s you know in ohio he was in the 60s in poll wise and they sat there and they drew their map and they figured it out and they went for all those seats. And as you said, I don't think they probably thought they would do as well as they did. And I also don't think even they, as, as right wing as they are, really understood how warped a world they were going to create when basically, again, when I say, when I say majorities, uh, a generation of people who have a democracy, I'm not talking about 20 or 30 out of the 99 member Ohio State House. I'm telling you, and I go through this in the book. We're talking 60 out of 99 offices in the Ohio State House of the Republicans. They're, they average double digit wins, normally 20 points or more. They're guaranteed reelection. And so I don't think and so they started it that way. And, and now we have to play catch up and we're and we're playing catch up when they have a lock on so much of the of the power that, de- that defines democracy. So, you know, we have people now, Eric Holder and Barack Obama put together a, a strategy that was helpful uh, to some places in, in 1920, but but it's still not nearly enough. We have to literally, I think, reformulate our entire thinking about politics to be about saving democracy. Once you do that, your map looks very different. It's not just what states win you the electoral college. It's all 50 states. You right. also start to say, okay, we can't only go crazy spending in a presidential year. Let's take a sliver of that money and spread it out over four years and fight in all 50 states at all levels. Now, that sounds nuts to some people. It's exactly what the Koch brothers did, and it's worked yeah. really well for them. So one of the things that I say in the book is state houses are basically the Achilles heel of American governance. They have huge weaknesses to them because no one knows who these people are, yet they have a ton of power. That was already a problem. And then the Koch brothers, through a group you all know, I'm sure, called Alec, they weaponized it. By going into these state houses and literally starting to write legislation privately that they give to all these places to to enact. So it was already a problem before in individual states. Now it's become this national orchestrated effort. Uh, And we're seeing it on economic issues, on on social issues. And we're now seeing it on voting issues where the Heritage Foundation is literally writing the voter suppression laws that these state house hacks just vote for a uh, completely devoid of any local and in, in-state in input. So can you unpack that a little bit? Because I think folks who probably listen to progress are familiar with Alec, but just in case they're not, can you explain quickly, you know, 
what ALEC is and what they do and how that ends up affecting us? Because I don't sure. think they'll see that connection as directly as they probably should. Yeah, so ALEC is the American Legislative Exchange Council, and they were the first group that really figured out, you know, no one is focused on state houses. The local and in-state media is dying, so they don't cover it like they used to. They figured out if you and they figured out these people are immune from the people. So however unpopular or controversial the legislation is, they can pass it and still stay in office. In Congress, it's a lot harder to get things done. Like I said, Marjorie Taylor Greene hasn't passed a bill. Well, people like her in Columbus will pass hundreds of bills and never lose an election. So Alec figured that out. And so what they do is they sign up as members in quotes, basically almost every Republican legislator in the country. They fly them to conferences in nice cities all over the country. And with them, they fly in the private sector who are also quote unquote members and pay a lot of money to be members. And they literally sit in rooms in, I'd say, co-write legislation, not in the state capitals, but at those fancy conference rooms. Uh, the, way, the best way to think about it is they privatized the legislative process. Mm. And the, so they had these little task forces and the public legislators and the private business people are in the same room as equals. It's as if the private business person is a legislator. They agree right. together on the legislation. The public member flies back to their in-state state capital and they put it through. I mean, it's it's literally the privatization legislative process. And so, again, state houses were bad enough before that, but now it's totally disconnected from the state itself. It's being written by these major groups. And who funds them? You know, read Jane Mayer's Dark Money. It's all those, it's right. Koch Brothers, it's major energy, telecom, you name it, companies. And, and here's the worst part. The ALEC model has worked so well that they figured out State houses are where you get really bad stuff done. Well, guess what? Everyone else is watching. So now Heritage Foundation is doing it for voting and the NRA is doing it for guns. I mean, they're all it's all about state houses now. And, and, and this is why this whole debate over the filibuster, they don't care if nothing happens in Washington because that's not where the action is. Uh, they care about it happening in state houses because it's getting done in a flurry no one, you know, even the, the, the hardworking local media, if they cover one out of 10 of these bills, we're lucky because they're so overwhelmed by them and it just never stops. And, and again, you know, I, this all sounds hopeless. Read the book because at the end I say, here's what we can do to stop it. But it is really, it's not just happening, it's accelerating. And this year it's exploding in many states as we're seeing. So can we talk about the autocracy part of it? Sure. Because it, it feels like, OK, if you get if you give Republicans supreme control, like obviously they're going to turn over as many federal lands to oil and gas as possible. And they're going to make sure that taxes are easy on people with generational wealth and hard on people who are trying to, to you know, move upwards on the social and economic ladder. Like you don't necessarily think they're going to turn us into Hungary. <laughs> that's that's not where you immediately go with state houses are broken and being run right. by the Koch brothers in private industries. So talk a little bit about the threat of autocracy and what you're seeing there. Sure. The way they, okay, so this is a very profitable thing for everybody, right? And they ha And the one way they would no longer be able to do all this stuff, because in the end, most of what they do on every issue, whether it be abortion or guns or you name it, most of what they do is very unpopular. 
So the only way to keep doing what they're doing is to seal themselves off from real elections. So the autocracy comes in that to keep this status quo going as corrupt and unpopular and as poor as the results are, they have to create a situation where they can't lose. It's, it's essential that the rules basically stifle any democracy. And so it sounds dramatic to say it this way, but if you look at what these state houses are doing, it's precisely what's happening in Hungary. Exactly. You know, they're not just changing voting rules, which is terrible. They're at, in Ohio. We elected Democrats did three. The last four Supreme Court races, we won three of them. We really focused on them. We finally created an independent court in Ohio. Well, guess what? They're now changing the rules of how you elect justices to the Ohio Supreme Court. So they win them. They've already done that in North Carolina. They're attacking the courts all around the country. They, as we've talked about, they're attacking states where they don't like how the Secretary of State operated. I, the, the attack, if we saw another country attack protesters and, and through laws and then encourage vigilantism against those protesters, we'd say, what in the world are they doing? This is stepping towards autocracy. They're doing that here. So it's gone from the economic issues of ALEC from 10 years ago to all these steps to lock in power, which get us to, you know, tearing down many of the pillars that support democracy and keep autocracy out. And, and the, the, the closest parallel to what's happening is not just places like Hungary. By the way, we all know Tucker Carlson is interviewing Orban. The, yes. the what's it called the CPAC is going to Hungary. This is their model. It's called a competitive autocracy where the process of elections looks legit, but they're changing so many rules. They're they're basically, um, you know, getting the outcome they want, no matter what, no matter what the voters do. Th this is also, though, very similar to when Jim Crow uh, took took place 100 so years ago. All these state houses are taking all these steps to lock in power. And the lesson is very clear. If the federal government does not step up and protect democracy, which is, it has a duty to do, nonstop attacks on democracy at the state level actually will succeed. What do we do about it? Yeah, that's, that's the question. Okay, let's, <laughs> uh, let's go there. Because I, I write, I'm an optimist. I still think there's time. Me too. Not, I have to be. Yeah. Jim Crow There's was a lot of time my parents were, were alive for. Yeah. So the <laughs> so first thing is that the federal, there, there is simply no reason, and it's essential that the bills that we've seen in Congress that deal with both voting rights as well as, you know, uh, gerrymandering, those have to happen. And anyone who says that the filibuster is a legitimate obstacle to, to those is not reading the U.S. Constitution, which not only protects, you know, has equal protection in the, in the Civil War amendments, but the Constitution literally has a clause that says the federal government shall guarantee a Republican form of government in states. And by Republican form, they meant a democratic, you know, yep. uh, the will of the people. They wrote that in the original Constitution because they were worried about moments like this. They knew we're giving a lot of power to these states. You know, state houses are the ones who determine presidential electors. They determine voting rules and, and, and how we vote. And the founders even said, basically, if those states ever become undemocratic, it's a danger to the whole country. So they wrote in the, the constitution that the federal government shall guarantee, basically, democratic governance in all these states. 
that that clause way trumps some procedural maneuver like the filibuster. There's just no excuse whatsoever. The founders would say to these you know, people who raised the filibuster, you're not reading what we wrote, guys. We guaranteed that you all would make sure that every state was a democracy. So we have to actually, as a federal government, take that on right away. And then the rest of us need to rethink about the way we engage in politics so we are fighting for democracy every year all the time including today, voting not just in Virginia, not just for McAuliffe, but all the way through those mm-hmm. those uh, mm-hmm. uh, state assembly seats, school board races. Um, so I think the bigger the bigger players in politics, you know, friends of mine like Jamie Harrison, they have to think about this is about democracy. And if it's about democracy, it's about all 50 states. It's about every single year. It's about it's about every position that has a lever that can either make democracy stronger or weaker. And we can't continue to only you know, get excited about certain US Senate races or only the presidency. And, and here's the thing that, that I think, you know, it, and it's not a zero sum game. If we were to invest more broadly, more up and down the ticket every year, sure, maybe that takes some money away from presidential year, maybe it doesn't, but that investment will make you more likely to win in the presidential year. Because you're yes. building something. We also have to think of this as a long game. And I happen to uh, be a law school classmate, longtime friend of Stacey Abrams. And she's my best modern day example of someone who understands it's a long game. Everything mm-hmm. you do is additive. Even if you don't win every time, you're building, you're building. So taking, we have to take on every gerrymandered state house member. Even if you lose, Taking them on is better than letting them get reelected without a challenge. Stacy's a great example of why that is. She ran a great race in 18. They suppressed the vote, you know, brutally. She didn't quite win. It almost did despite that suppression. But everything she built in 18 just kept building to 20. She registered new voters. Those who voted for her were going to vote in 20. It just keep building. She understood that even in, in a loss by the numbers, she actually made great progress. So we have to all define this as a much longer game for democracy and, and, and act accordingly. And I go through in the book ways that every single individual, you know, who cares about this can play a role. They, not yes, everyone's going to run for office. All of us, whatever organizations we run, whatever we're part of, we should be registering voters every single day. We should yeah. all have in our own personal mission. How do we lift democracy? And that means if you're a barbershop, a restaurant, a nonprofit, if you're a city mayor, use your footprint to always register and engage voters because the other side is using their footprint to suppress those same voters. It's a fight. We have to keep fighting it. You can't just wait till election time to do that. It's so important. It's such an an organizer mindset, too. And one of the things I learned my very first day volunteering for the Obama campaign in 08, I always tell the story. I... I show up to like register voters. Um, And this is even before I moved to Virginia. This is like in New Jersey at a, you know, local fair or town event or something. And I'm like, well, let's, let's go volunteer on this Saturday to register some people. And I get there and the girl who is in charge is 17 (laughs) and she's not Mm -hmm. even going to be old enough to vote in the election. Um, Or no, she's 16 and she's not going to be 18 by the election day of 2008 because this is, before I even moved to Virginia. So she had to be only 16. And I asked her really earnestly, why are you here? 
I was like, you can't even vote. I don't understand why you were here. Um, and she's like, I have to live in the country. And I was like, oh my God, I am so dumb. She is so smart and she is oh. so right. And so one of the things I think is important for folks to understand is that when we're, when we're talking about you know, registering voters and we're talking about getting engaged in politics, you don't have to be a professional staffer to be engaged in the democracy. Right. And so, you know, think, think of yourself as that, you know, young woman who can't even vote in the election, but she is sacrificing her Saturday to register voters because she has to live in the world where climate change is an address, where voting rights are an address, where democracy is breaking down and our abortion rights are getting stripped away. Um, she has to live in the country. You mm -hmm. have to live in the country. And so are we all invested in making sure that our democracy is working and functional and is actually a democracy. Because the thing that will happen is, like you said, it will look like a democracy, it will look like an election, all the mechanics will be in place. Correct. And then they'll even get fewer votes because they've rigged the system. Oh. It won't matter. And then we, we go out and protest, they violently respond. And then we all go back inside because there's been violence. Um, right. committed against us. And that is, that's the worst case scenario we were trying to avoid. Yeah. Uh, yes. What scares me is, you know, January 6th, as scary as it was, looked illegitimate, right? It looked crazy. You can't do that. That's violent right. insurrection. What the danger of the state houses, and you, you, I have no doubt they have the same memos that Eastman wrote to that guy mm. Eastman wrote. Good they point. have those memos. And right. if they do it through their activity, it will look legitimate. Right. And and we won't and, and that's the danger of these types of autocracies is they have a veil of legitimacy to them. And right. once it sets in, it's much harder to say, wait a second, you changed every rule so you couldn't lose, but you did it through actual lawmaking. And so you're on the outside looking in and you can't really right. challenge it after the fact. And that's what that's the danger of what's happening that we're hearing about. Um, David Pepper, thank you so much for joining us this morning. The book is Laboratories of Autocracy. Um, obviously, we highly recommend it if you want to understand what's going on in this country right now and what you can do about it. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. I really, thank really you. appreciate it. Thanks for all you're doing. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 